Welcome to Reason for Hope. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is a weekly, or I should say daily broadcast we do every week uh, during weekdays uh, where you can chime in your questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, uh, questions about uh, religious uh, practices and how religions and worldview connect to each other. And uh, sometimes we do even things on logic and all kinds of fun stuff. But really it's about uh, what is the purpose of life? What is How do we apply the Bible to our lives? And uh, you can ask your questions live on multiple platforms. You can catch us on Facebook at CCCF, or CCF Tucson uh, on, on our Facebook page there. And please, if you catch the broadcast there, be sure to share it on your uh, timeline if you don't mind. You can also catch us on YouTube. That's a reason for hope. Like and subscribe if you can. And... Uh, <clears throat> Our uh, handle at YouTube is a reason for hope 546. You can also follow Pastor Scott Richards, and his Twitter handle is Scott, the letter R, the number four, the letter H, and uh, we check it. And you can actually ask questions there in live real time as we are doing the broadcast as well. If you want to watch live in another place, we also live stream all our services, including this program. Uh, from our website. You can just click on the little Watch Live tab on our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. And we also have an app where you can download from the Apple Play Store, the Google Play Store. We're also in the Amazon Play Store, Roku. And you can watch us live, chat, catch all our services, and stay on top of current events there as well. So uh, in studio with me today is, of course, uh, Pastor Sean Richards, a little Bible answer man genius that we always love to hear what he has to say as he studies through your questions. And of course, our senior pastor at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Scott Richards, thank you so much both That's of you me. for being here. <laughs> it's great to be here. Looking forward to what the Lord's going to do. Well, why don't we ask him to be here and uh, we'll start getting to some questions. John, you want to pray for us? Happy to. Yeah. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word and allow it to go forth in your name to be honored. We know we don't relate to you on any basis apart from your mercy and your power. We pray that both will be demonstrated here as your people are edified and your name is fully and properly represented. We pray this in all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So starting us off, we have questions on email. Yeah, we did get an email, and the question was relating to people who had never heard the gospel. There's a passage in Romans 2, chapter 2, and they were asking, well, if God saves people— in light of being given general revelation, well, first, does God actually save people who have never heard just based on general revelation? And if that's the case, then why evangelize at all? If there's no need to hear the gospel to be saved, then why do evangelism? But if if the gospel message is necessary, then God doesn't save people who have never heard. So how do we how do we approach that whole? It subject? always cracks me up when uh, questions sort of revolve around this. Do we really need to evangelize, uh, kind of things? And uh, you know, it's it's one of those deals where I think sometimes we can be too clever by half, uh, thinking uh, through all of these different uh, so therefores. Uh, you know, the best way to answer this question, I think, is very very simple. Uh, the Bible makes it very very clear that uh, the uh, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 makes that extremely explicit. Uh, in other words, uh, it even goes on in Romans chapter 10 to say, how will they hear uh, unless uh, there's a preacher and how they go if they're not sent. Uh, the idea of the evangelistic uh, imperative in scripture is just very, very difficult to get around it. Uh, Matthew chapter 28 uh, verses 18 and following, Jesus' famous last words in the Gospel of uh, Matthew to his disciples, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, the idea of taking the Gospel to the four corners of the earth is certainly something that Jesus commanded. Someday, according to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that accomplished, I do believe, that God will give the people of Israel the honor, if you will, of fulfilling what we would call the Great Commission of Jesus, because we do see in Revelation chapter 7, following uh, the uh, anointing and sending out of the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, suddenly we see people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, even language group, 
uh, in heaven as a result of their ministry. Now, because that's yet in the future and we haven't reached every possible conceivable language group and so on, doesn't mean that uh, we just kind of uh, throw up our hands and say, well, God will do that when the 144,000 come. I think that's just as silly as saying, well, um, if God could save people apart from preaching, why should we preach? Well, first part of the answer to this question is we should share the good news with as many people as we possibly can for this logical reason. Um, I think it was uh, Curtis Mitchell, a pastor who came to Talbot Seminary when I was there and did a, a, a chapel there I'll, I'll never forget. He said, there's only two things that you and I can do, can touch on earth that will last forever, mm-hmm. the word of God and people. Mm-hmm. And the wise person is going to invest themselves in both. Mm-hmm. So that first and foremost, you know, should we be sharing our faith? Absolutely, we should be sharing our faith. Bible's very clear about that. Okay, the question always comes up, what about the one who never heard? You know, and it's always this picture of some noble uh, person in the middle of the Congo who's never had any kind of missionary contact or someone who lives high up in the Himalayas and no one has reached them and uh, the jungles of Borneo or you name it. And uh, people say, well, that's just not fair. You know, this person didn't get the opportunity to hear. Uh, and if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that person is just out of luck. Now, again, some people will try to do the old, uh, you know, predestination song and dance. Well, they weren't the elect anywhere. They would have been born somewhere where they could have heard the gospel. But that's not a solid biblical answer. It sounds bible but it's not a solid biblical answer. When the question comes up, you know, I always go to a passage in the book of Acts that I think is really remarkable as mm. far as God literally moving heaven and earth mm. to get his message to anyone who has the slightest inclination to be open to his message. And it's found in Acts chapter 10. It's the story of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. Now, you know, we would say, well, okay, Cornelius was there uh, in, uh, in uh, Caesarea. Uh, that was close to the promised land. So obviously he He'd had exposure to the gospel. But wait a minute, what kind of a person was Cornelius? He's a Roman centurion, the, the rough equivalent of a Roman master sergeant. You don't mm. get to be that without being pretty big, pretty bad, pretty battle-tested, pretty sold out to imperial Rome. Well, you know, this guy Cornelius, who, again, in charge of 100 soldiers uh, in a uh, crucial place like Caesarea, which is one of the uh, main Roman uh, uh, centers of power in the region probably could look around and see these Jews going about their worship and say, why should I pay attention to this God of the Jews? The gods of uh, Rome seem to be doing us pretty well. We've conquered the known world. The Jews are under our steel reinforced sandal. Uh, why in the world would I even want to listen to them? Especially in light of the fact that a guy like Cornelius went to work every day, literally with a bullseye painted on his back. There was a sect of the Jews called the Zealots, who uh, believed that uh, killing the enemies of God was doing a, a holy service. And so if you could take out a Roman centurion, boy, two thumbs up for you in the, the local uh, zealot club. So, you know, here was a guy who had literally had every reason possible to reject the gospel, but God started working on his heart. He's called a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, meaning the Jewish people, and prayed to God always. Well, here we see that God is sovereignly working on this fellow's heart. What was it that caused him to somehow become interested in the God of Israel so much so that he put his money where his mouth was and gave alms? We don't know. You know, we don't know what the backstory is, but we do know this. You know, he's praying and an angel comes to him and says, send down to Joppa to a place, uh, the home of Simon the Tanner, there's a guy there named Simon Peter. He will tell you how to be saved. Okay. So he dispatches three of his servants and over in Joppa, which is a beautiful place, by the way. I love Joppa. It's one of uh, the, the, the really cool places to visit when you're in Israel. Mm. But, uh, but you know, in Joppa, Peter is sitting up on the top of the roof waiting for lunch and feeling a little bit peckish, maybe a little hypoglycemic and he kind of starts to drift off and he goes into this trance and he sees this vision come down of all these unclean animals, things that are absolutely forbidden for Jewish people to eat. 
you know, pigs and, and so on. And uh, this voice comes from heaven saying, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, never, Lord, I've never uh, eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice from heaven says, don't call anything common or unclean that I've declared clean. So the vision repeats three times. Suddenly, at the end of the third vision, knocking on the door, three servants of this Roman centurion, Cornelius. And God says, go with them and don't ask any questions. Says, All right. So there he goes. And, and, you know, talk about kicking and screaming. When, when Peter goes in the home of Cornelius, the first thing he says to them, talk about a bridge builder, uh, is, uh, is this. Uh, and I, I just think it's, it's so funny. Uh, it's, he says, uh, you know uh, that it is unlawful for me, for a Jewish man, to keep company or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? And he's like, I wouldn't be here at all, right? Unless God told me to. I don't like being here. I don't like hanging out with you people. You're not my kind of folks. What do you mean, you people? <laughs> you people. <laughs> so, you know, you know, Cornelius tells him about how the angel appeared, mentioned him by name and, and so on, and we're all here, and, and we want to hear all the things you've been commanded by God. And Peter's just blown away. He says, in truth, I perceive that God knows show, knows, shows no partiality. Listen to this. But in every nation... Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, some people say, well, does that mean if you're you know, a God-fearer and you try to do your best, then God's going to accept you whether you hear the gospel or not? No. What it means is, is that even in a situation where all of the walls are up, where, where every obstacle towards someone receiving the gospel is in place, God can and does work around that. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't go and share the gospel with as many people as we can. Why? Because there's no better thing we could do with our time. If we love Jesus, we're going to share his priorities, and Jesus loves the world. He loves the unsaved world. We're going to be a part of that if we love the Lord. But the interesting thing to me is, you know, Peter starts to share the gospel, and before he can even get to his altar call, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his entire family. Mm. And the people who are with Peter are shocked and stunned and surprised. And uh, you know, says, they said, uh, look, uh, who can forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, Peter's saying is uh, evidently God had a different idea about Gentiles than we did. And remember, this is from a Jewish culture that honest to goodness had their leading rabbis theorize the only reason that God made Gentiles was to make logs to stoke the fires of hell. So, you know, these people are just blown away. So all of this is just to say, if there is anyone, that noble savage, uh, that, that person in the Himalayas, the, the one in Irian Jaya or Borneo, or you name uh, the unreached place, if they have the slightest inclination to reach out to God, God will get the message to them. Sometimes he will even use supernatural means to do so. And there's a fascinating book uh, by a missionary and anthropologist named mm. Don Richardson called mm. Eternity in Their Hearts, mm. where he details incident after incident, where not only uh, is his theory like uh, Melchizedek in, in Genesis, this guy comes out of nowhere, uh, doesn't have any seeming connection with Abraham at all, but he's the priest of the Most High God. Abraham obviously has intense spiritual respect for the guy. Uh, the writer of Hebrews even says, man, this guy is like a type of Jesus. He was so right on. He's an example of a priest apart from Judah. Yeah, and uh, an individual is not only a priest, but also the king of Salem. Uh, you know, and again, you can read through Hebrews chapter seven about all the, the compares and contrasts that are involved with that. And if you want to discuss Melchizedek more, we can certainly do that. But the, the bottom line is he calls it the Melchizedek factor because, uh, you know, missionaries will find that these, that there are individuals that they will come to and they'll start to tell them about Jesus and they go, oh, we already know about him. You know, one of our shamans or our witch doctors uh, was worshiping other gods mm -hmm. and the true and living God showed up and revealed this truth to us. And yeah, we believe, you know, and they're, they're just stunned. 
So we serve a supernatural God. We serve a God who is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so what about the person who never heard? It's not like, uh, well, you know, if you're just a nice person and a missionary didn't get around to seeing you, I'm sure God has plan B. The Bible says there is no other name given among men mm-hmm. by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4. Uh, you just can't get around that. But God will get that truth and that name to anyone who shows the slightest inclination uh, of being interested in a relationship with him. And Cornelius is a great example of that. Talk about all the obstacles that had to be overcome to reach this guy. And uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, the most reluctant evangelist in the world, dragged kicking and screaming, sees this incredible move of God. This guy prepared to receive the gospel open to hearing the gospel, doesn't raise any objections to the gospel, doesn't even wait for Peter's sales pitch, in a sense, to be over, receives the Holy Spirit just like the apostles did. God, I think, has a great answer to that question. We're in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, Acts 17 is always an ideal place mm-hmm. to go when we understand that the work of salvation is the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this is God's work in us to even recognize our need for him. Paul describes our placement in the world and the circumstances therein this way to an audience very much separated from Israel. He says in verse 20, let's start in verse 20, maybe 26. He made from one blood every nation to dwell on the face of the earth, and notice this, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. For what reason? So they should seek the Lord. No, not the Lord should seek them. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For, and then quoting the Greek philosopher they were all familiar with, in him we live and move and have our being. For as your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the um not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men to repent. Notice this. By, uh, well, because he will appoint a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him mm-hmm. from the dead. So there is an imperative now. There's a working assumption the gospel is accessible now. How? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God's not limited by time and space. We are, and all of our places in that time and space are given the opportunity to either receive or reject this gift. We're going to be talking about it in a few weeks in our study in Isaiah 7, but the point of emphasis is this, um, Justice, and when we're talking about this issue, just make sure that we get all of the factors straight. Adrian, you mentioned earlier general revelation. Romans Mm -hmm. 2 follows through Mm -hmm. on that point, and there's a reason why Romans is more than two chapters, because the point continues on. Mm -hmm. He starts with the idea that we're all guilty before God, because whether we know him personally or not, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Chapter 2 builds on that by saying, what about those who have been given the revelation of God in more detail? And he says they don't keep it either. And noting the point of contrast, Romans 2, 12 through 26 makes that point Mm -hmm. in saying they are um, basically the hypothetical. If they, by the law, obeyed it, and those apart from the law obeyed it, they're both obeying it. Mm-hmm. But Romans 3 goes on to say, none of us are obeying yeah. it. We need a Savior, which now, is the point of Romans 4. For some 4 of on. us, it was written on the heart. For some of us, it was revealed, and we're all guilty of breaking it. <laughs> which is the point that Paul then makes. We have the opportunity to reach out for a Savior. The problem is not all are reaching, and God respects that rejection. The other point that needs to be made is just that. We have general revelation. We also have personal revelation. Mm, We need to be faithful with what we have, not uh, be envious of the people who are given a harder time. You mentioned eternity in their hearts. There's also modern testimonies of this regard Mm. in More Than Dreams, I Met Messiah, plenty of people. Epicenter by Joel Rosenberg. Yeah, yeah, people who've been reached personally and supernaturally by Jesus in order to accomplish this. Uh, accomplish this, excuse me, but note the point. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the work of salvation isn't our eloquence, it's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We can be a part of the Holy Spirit's work because he's 
in here too, but that should be our priority in sharing it because that's the work that God is doing and we can be a part of it. And if you want to argue laziness is a virtue because God does it better, shame on you. That's not the point. Yeah, and and what's interesting is those many testimonies that you talk about, even in the Islamic world, the last several years I've spent more time ministering in Islamic nations and places that are considered somewhat closed. And uh, it's amazing how many Muslims have dreams about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then when we come and do an, our, our event, they they immediately come to faith. And they say, yeah, I had a dream about Jesus, and I was just asking God for someone to give me a Bible. And here you guys are doing a, a program on a street corner. Uh, there was We were in, uh, in Germany, actually, and there was a, a, an Iraqi fighter pilot who fought in the Gulf War who oh is now— in Germany, had just moved there and had like this premonition, and he just was walking across down the street, and we're you know doing our program, and I share the gospel message, and when we gave him the Bible, he said he was he became a Christian that day. He clung to that thing like it was a, a rock of gold. It was just unbelievable how God does that, and and you know if <laughs> if he's gonna do miracles, I think it seems that God has called the body of Christ to first do it, and if we're not going to do it, then he'll do it anyway. <laughs> but like Jesus said, you know, if you won't say it, the very rocks will cry out. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you enable the rocks. You have yeah, the chance yeah. to do it the easy way. And what do you think about when someone says, if you don't do it, then you have blood on your hands, that person could have been saved, but because of, it kind of negates that concept. I, I remember when I first started getting into ministry, if I wasn't, you know, doing it 24-7, uh, I would get these guilt trips laid on me. Yeah. Saying that, oh, well, you know, instead of taking that nap or deciding to go to the movies or hang out with your friends, you could have been out witnessing. And how many people didn't hear and how many people are now going to be condemned because of your unfaithfulness? Yeah. And that seems yeah. to really belittle God's sovereignty, not in violating human freedom, but his love. And as you said, Pastor Scott, um, he uh, doesn't desire anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And if he's willing to transport Philip to an Ethiopian eunuch just so that he can understand the book of Isaiah and how it relates to the gospel, uh, he's going to he's gonna be able to work around my laziness. Yeah. Not that I should be lazy. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah it, it's a mishandling of the passage, well intended it's though it may be, of Ezekiel where it notes the watchman who's responsible to warn, and if he does his job but the city ignores him, that's on them. If you neglect your job and the city's taken, that's on you. The problem is, again, as you said, Adrian, the point we need to make is not put so much of the animus on us that if we don't do something, Mm. God's purposes fail. It's the opportunity and the motivation that both need to be kept in balance, not Mm. necessarily the outcomes. Because even if I do share, I could guilt trip myself and saying, oh, if only I'd studied more, or oh, if I only had uh, not mentioned that one topic. Paul may be witnessing outside of Jerusalem, or outside in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, where he said, oh, if I hadn't mentioned the Gentiles, they wouldn't have gotten into a riot. Now, people are going to be people, us included. The motivation is, God, what are you doing today? And if it's just, hey, rest in me, know that I love mm-hmm. you, that's a good thing. Yeah. But if on the other hand, it's, hey, see that person there? I want you to witness to him be really obvious if you have the kind of attitude that wants to share. Yeah. Yeah. I think a willing heart, not a guilted, laden heart yeah. is what God is looking for. Sometimes uh, people will uh, point to Acts chapter 20, uh, where Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders before he set sail. He was, knew it was the last time he would ever see them. He says, indeed, now I know that all of you among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day I'm, the, uh, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, there are some people who will say, well, if you don't share uh, with everybody continually and perpetually, then their blood is on your hands. Well, and, and it goes back to Ezekiel being pointed out as a watchman and, you know, just as a watchman on the wall who sees danger coming. If he doesn't warn, then, you know, that's on him. He'll be guilty. But if he does warn and nobody listens, then, you know, he, he's delivered himself, mm. you know, and, and there's that analogy there. Well, first of all, Paul is speaking to a specific group of people. He, is set, he doesn't say, I have not shunned to declare to the entire world, the entire Roman world, 
uh, the whole counsel of God. He's saying to this group of Ephesian elders, and, and he's emphasizing the fact that he withheld nothing from them that was helpful. He declared to them the whole counsel of God so that they would in turn be equipped to be able to help and minister to other people. I, I think there's well-intentioned but extremely perfectionistic people, mm. maybe even we could use the term legalistic people, who believe or have crept into this idea that I'm saved by grace through faith plus sharing my faith. That's the only way I'll have peace if I'm always sharing my faith. And, and people that are kind of run roughshod by fear like that, misery tends to love company. You know, I've noticed that about people. People that have no peace see other people who are at peace, and it really bugs them. Uh, you know, Paul talked about how uh, there were people that were sent in to spy out on the liberty that they had in Christ. They wanted to put them again under this yoke of bondage. And so when we talk about this whole idea of, well, you're a watchman on the wall, and uh, if you didn't warn somebody, well, okay, that should be something that we would take to heart because on the one side of the coin, God does have divine appointments for us. And if, if someone is open to the gospel or if circumstances are such that we have the opportunity to be able to share, and I'm more worried about me than I am about them. You know, I, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to. Well, well, then, you know, take a step back and ask yourself this question. What if the person who shared the Lord with you felt the same way? Um, you know, you wouldn't be in the kingdom. So the motivation that we have, you know, the, the Apostle Paul said something really interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, the love of Christ constrains us, mm -hmm. concluding that, uh, because one uh, one died for all, because all have died. Uh, you know, in other words, the love of Christ, loving Jesus and wanting to share His heart for the world. Obviously, that's one of the reasons we share our faith. But we love Jesus. We and and we share the love of Jesus mm -hmm. because we love people. You know, and and if we don't love people, or we love our own comforts, or we love keeping the peace, or we love our own reputations uh, more than sharing our faith well then i think we need to do some some examination of our heart but the 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 place where this really gets negative and i think you know creates some really bad fruit is this idea of saying well you better go out and share your faith if you want to be assured of your salvation because oh, you know and, yeah. and 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 you know some people will will hear these kind of messages and get all and I, I i'll tell you what they do i mean i've sat through enough of these messages and you know they'll do the minimum They'll uh, see somebody at work, and they'll say something the effect of, uh, you wouldn't want to hear about Jesus or anything, would you? And they go, what? Oh, okay, good. I'm, I've done my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. They just weren't interested. Mm -hmm. You know, or I, I put a bumper sticker on the back of my car. You know, it's just the bare minimum to get by. And that's what the law always does. Mm. It always puts us in a place where we do the bare minimum. Uh, we, we, we just don't, we don't care about other people. We just don't want to feel guilty. And, and I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that's a proper motivation for ministry. You know, I, I remember uh, an experience I had uh, early on after I got saved. I went to a Bible study at a church in Ventura, and this guy who was one of the interns said, hey, can I, can I uh, come on over today? You know, well, you know, I don't know the guy, you know, all that well. I talked to him. Like, sure, man, let's go. Let's, let's, let's hang out. He came over, and I could see he was on a mission. He was there to do visitation. Mm. He wasn't there because he liked me or was even really interested in a relationship with me. I was on his list. And let me tell you, there's, there's no bigger turnoff than people looking at us and thinking we're a project, you know, that somehow they're doing things not because they really care about us, they want to be friends or anything like that, but because this, is, this was their task for the day. Um, evangelism works that same way and i think non-believers at least i used to be able to pick up on it in a shot there were people and christians who'd share their faith with me because they thought "Ooh, you know if i convert an atheist like this guy i'll really have a notch on my bible hmm. you know and, and i i could see through that you know and i think the average person does yeah. but when we're sincere we really care about people you know when the love of christ really does constrain hmm. us and we go man knowing jesus the greatest things that ever happened to me and here's this person I know that's struggling with all this guilt and, you know, they go from relationship to destructive relationship and, you know, their, their substance abuse and things like that, trying to find some peace in their life. 
I got the answer. You know, I, I can tell them about Jesus. I can tell them what the Lord's done for me. I can tell them what the Lord wants to do for them. Mm. And, and that, to me, is the love of Christ constraining us. Mm. And, and I think if we have that attitude, well, then God is going to determine the altitude, if you, or even the amplitude of our ministry. But if it's all about me and it's all about getting my requirements in or, oh, man, I really felt guilty in that last message, so I better tell someone about Jesus, don't be surprised if you don't get a chance to share with many people. Why would God want to use a, a person with that kind of motivation to represent him? Mm. So yeah. make sure our hearts are in the right place. That's huge. Yeah, so. and we, we love Christ because he loved us first, just like it says in Romans, uh, the love of God has been shut or brought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and Fortunately, when I was given that message, I was young in my new in my faith, and I was, you know, being taught by a very healthy Bible-believing church, and quickly realized that's not the reason why I should commit my life to the mission field. Before I made that decision, it was just a sheer love and joy of talking to people about the faith and seeing them come to Christ. And that, if that's not your motivation, then why are you doing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got yeah. some questions. Yeah, we got. Quite a few questions. It's uh, the the interwebs are ringing. So, uh, <laughs> Torbeth would like to know why become a member of a church, and I think specifically of the idea of being having church membership installed as part of the church government or the church system. Uh, uh, Torbeth asks if local church membership is is church is local church membership necessary? If you are saved, you are already a member of the church. Isn't that just the same? Serve your com- and then just serve co- your community. So yeah. be a part of the community. But why do I have to be like sign on the dotted line and be a member? I think this is kind of the yeah. Yeah, the question. you have to be wise at these sort of things. Obviously, the leaders can prayerfully approach how they want to structure their church, and everyone has the liberty on how to do that. The reason why church memberships usually brought up isn't necessarily to keep people out, but to make sure the people that are in aren't there to make a mess. If they leave open doors, which again is a valid form of ministry, just um, meet people on a person-by-person basis, that's generally good for smaller fellowships because if someone starts sharing false doctrine or someone's stirring up drama, being divisive, you can deal with that. But in larger churches, they generally take the church membership route not to vet people from coming in, that'd be an abuse of it but to make sure the people that are in understand these are bylaws, these are um, uh, distinctives is the word I was looking for, these are the reasons why we're gathered here like this. Do you agree to those terms? So then that way, when they call them out on it, they can address it in writing. And this is becoming, I think, more and more wise as the United States is passing legislation to persecute churches for not adhering to bylaws determined by the state rather than by the church. But the point being made is this. uh, If you have a church that has a membership role, the question is to ask why. Is it to make sure that people are being properly fed and that they're there because they want to be there and to do so in some way that's decently structured in an order, First Corinthians style? But if on the other hand, it's someone who's like, we don't want those atheists or false prophets out, so no one comes to the church except through me, signed the pastor. That's a third John type scenario. Uh, Boanerges, I think, or uh, what was the name of the, not Boanerges? Diotrephes. Diotrephes, that was his name, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point being made is that we want to make sure that we give people the benefit of the doubt, and there is wisdom in it, but make sure that the execution is as wise as the motive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, Torbeth, uh, you know, you say, I follow Christ only and no man, so I don't attend church. Boy, Torbeth, I can relate to you, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm a pastor of a church. But when I first got saved, man, um, I was raised in an environment where the few times we went to church, you know, we'd sit there and my folks would lean over and go, that guy taking the offering is the biggest crook in town. And, mm-hmm. you know, you'd sit in these uncomfortable pews and we'd be singing songs that didn't make any sense to me, like faith of our fathers. Well, my father doesn't have any faith. You know, what are, we, what are we talking about here? And so I will tell you, Torbeth, full disclosure, it took me probably a good three or four years after I got saved to see the value of being a part of a local church. Now, <laughs> I think it's really ironic that God would take someone with my attitude and eventually put a call in my life to be in full-time Christian ministry. It's proof positive that God has a sense of humor. So Torbeth, let me explain to you why I'm not, I gave up that idea 
of uh, just, uh, you know, well, you know, why can't we just hang out, man? You know, why can't we just like, you know, do like a small group? Why do we need to have church going on? Uh, One of the the most important things that the Lord laid on my heart uh, was this, Um, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, and I think Sean's already put this up on the internet, tells us something really significant. Uh, You know, it tells us uh, in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day coming. What's the purpose of the church? I think Chuck Swindoll once said, it's God's love served family style. We're the family of God. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the value of fellowship and uh, being a part of a local church, a number of different reasons why we should be a part of a local church. First of all, because God raises up different gifted individuals within the body of Christ to be able to minister to one another. You know, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 talk about spiritual gifts that God gives to each individual member in the body. But it's only as these gifts minister to one another that the whole body is able to grow. And, and you know, when I, began to, when I began to understand that, when I began to understand that the purpose of church isn't for me to go so I get something out of it, but because the Lord was doing a work in my life and maybe in some small way I can make the church a little bit more Christ-like. I can share the love of Jesus with people that need to have uh, the the love of Jesus in their life. Um, You know, granted, you know, people that come into church and say, boy, I'm going to straighten all you people out. You're all out to lunch and stuff like that. I think you're going to find most churches don't want to be straightened out. Hmm. They they think they're just fine the way they are. But if we invest ourselves in a local church and are there on a regular basis, a couple of wonderful things happen. First of all, people with spiritual gifts are able to minister to us and we're built up. But the other wonderful thing that happens is we begin to discover our spiritual gifts. And we begin to discover how we can reach out and love other people. And when we do that, uh, you know, an, an amazing thing happens. We start growing and becoming more like Jesus. We begin to look at the church less as an organization and more like an organism. You know, it's a body that we are a part of, you know, I, uh, this is hardly quoting a theologian here, but Woody Allen was once asked the uh, secret of success in his career. And he said 90% of success in his career was just showing up. And, you know, I really believe that 90% of being used by God in a significant, significant way is showing up on a regular basis, not for what I can get, but for what I can give praying before I get there, Lord, show me somebody that I can encourage because as we encourage others, we're encouraged as well. But the other thing that is so important, Torbeth, is, is this. If you isolate yourself, first of all, Proverbs chapter 18 warns against that. It says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rails against all wise judgment. So there's definitely a, a bridge out ahead sign if we start isolating ourselves and we don't get involved with other people. The other thing that you're going to, to understand, Torbeth, is when you invest yourself in the life of a local church and you decide, okay, I'm going to, nobody else is going to be filled with the Spirit. I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. Nobody else is going to be interested in talking about the Word of God. I'm going to be interested in talking about the Word of God. Nobody else is going to reach out to people who look kind of isolated, alone, or lonely. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to use me in that situation. The more you do that on a consistent basis, guess what you get? Credibility. Because anybody can sweep into a church and say, well, I'm God's answer to the church. And boy, you're going to all see how spiritual I am. You know, and people look at you like, boy, this sounds a little culty to me. This guy seems like a wolf, even if you have the best intentions. But if you come to a church and you say, you know, hey, I I just want to get to know the pastors. I want to get to know the leaders. I, I want to get to know the people who are involved there. And people see that you're there on a regular basis, that you're worshiping God, that you're a person of the word, that you're growing in Christ-likeness, then you're going to ha- find yourself having a platform where people are going to start probably coming to you and saying, you know, could you pray for me? Uh, or, you know, you seem to really be interested in Scripture. I had, a, I had a question. Or, or you know, I'm really struggling with this issue in my life. Could you help me out? But if you never get involved, you know, you just stand on the outside with your arms folded and say, well, they're all, all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, okay. 
old joke, but it's true. If you're worried about hypocrites in the church, come on in. There's always room for one more. Uh, because who among us can say we're perfect? And we always live up to the things we say we believe. We're not perfect. We're in process. And Peter makes a really interesting picture. He says that we all, like living stones, are being built up into a holy temple where God can dwell within us. Well, the thing about living stones is they tend to move. And when you've got stones that are moving against each other, sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. Other times we're really polishing each other up. But you can't do these things if you're just like, well, I'm just going to go up on Mount Lemmon by myself and worship God. You can go up on Mount Lemmon and worship God. Good on you. You know, may your tribe increase. But I think the more you worship God, the more you share Jesus' heart for the church, the more that's going to change. And just one other thing I'd say about it is in the book of Revelation, right? The letters to the seven churches, Torbeth, I'd, I'd encourage you to read through those because you had great churches. You had churches that were phony. They had a name that they were alive. They were dead. You had churches that were hitting on all cylinders. You had churches where powerful personalities had taken over and introduced false doctrine. But you know what? Jesus said, first of all, I know your works because he knew everything that was going on. Why? Because where two or more would gather in his name, he's going to be there in the midst. He describes himself as the one who not only walks among the seven lampstands, which represented these seven churches, but he was also the one who held the leaders of these churches in his hand. So if Jesus is that invested in the church, God's people gathering together, uh, we should probably be invested mm -hmm. in that. And, and once I got that through my thick skull, uh, you know, obviously the rest, as they say, is history. Here I am. I'm a pastor. You so. think this passage in Hebrews is relevant? Three, uh, verse twelve. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How can you uh, do that daily if you're not around believers? <laughs> Oh, yeah, if you yeah. don't know your need for it, and you have no other barometer than yourself mm. to know when you're getting goofy. And yeah. there's a distinction, right? Uh, initially, I thought church membership as sort of like a formal, you're a member, you're not a member, you're just here. Well, we don't we do don't church do membership right. at Calvary Christian Fellowship in yeah, a formal right. sense. Uh, and there's a reason for that. We just don't see it ever taught in the New Testament. If you're a part of the body of Christ, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, he's the head of the church. Mm -hmm. He's the one... It's his church. People say, you know, a guy on the internet said, oh, I'd like to come to your church someday. It's not my church. <laughs> you know, God help us if it's my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And, and I want to be a part of anything that Jesus is, is a part of. But it's interesting, and I, I kind of throw this over to you, Sean, because I think there's a, kind of a, 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 a tell, if you will, or putting the cards on the table here with this comment. He says, a friend of mine just reads the Bible for himself to escape false doctrine. Yeah, that's how false doctrine gets produced. Well, yeah, but why would someone do that? Could it be that that person's been burned or hurt before or is not walking in faith but walking in fear? Yeah. You know, and fear tends to isolate us. Faith mm. tends to bring us together. Mm. And, and granted, you got to be spiritually discerning. You know, we talk about the discernometer here on a reason for hope. Boy, when you go into a church, you really got to be doing that because there's a lot of hucksters and a lot of hoaxers out there uh, and a lot of false doctrine out there. But, uh, you know, when we say, okay, Lord, please show me the place where I fit in. Show me someplace where I can have fruitful ministry. You know, it might take uh, a few visits and, uh, and some searching around, but I, I think you're going to find some places that really love the Lord, really love his word. Yeah. 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 And it, it's ironic. I mean, if, if you're a human being, and around other human beings, you are going to get burned yeah. in the church or out of the church. If you haven't been burned yet, then uh, you're not around people. <laughs> That's yeah. just human nature to to fail. And uh, if you're so isolated, as you said, Scott, you're not only going to miss out on that natural sounding board. It's like kind of looking in a mirror that you get from being in relationship. Yeah, uh, It's one of the things I learned about being married is wow, I didn't realize what a jerk I was. <laughs> well, you know, we said this in church yesterday. Um, you know, you got blind spots, I got blind spots, all God's children got blind spots. And my blind spots, I'm not even aware of them, but they might be painfully obvious to other people. 
the only way that I'm going to be aware of my blind spots, maybe it's a doctrinal issue, maybe it's some area of practice in my walk with God, maybe it's an area where you know a sin like pride or something is starting to creep into my life. The only way that I'm going to be aware of those blind spots is if I get invested enough in a church, a group of believers who love the Lord, love his word, and they know me well enough to not only be able to spot some of these things, but to also gain a hearing. You know, when, when a stranger comes up to me and says, well, I think the Lord's told me that, you know, you're full of pride and you're a big jerk. It's easy for me to say, well, you don't even know me. You know, and then usually the eyes glaze over and I'm a prophet. And I, no, I think you're more, more a loss at that point. But if somebody really knows me, you know, someone that I have a relationship with says, you know, I, I kind of see something in your life. You know, I'd like you to pray about that, you know, and I'm going to be far more inclined to listen to that, don't you think, than the other stuff. Mm. So, um, so if we were going to address the question then, Sean, uh, can people just, you know, do their own church, be their own minister? What would you say? I'd say that's an incredibly bad idea because we are full of them. And when it comes to a careful consideration of God's Word, obviously, if you are reading it, then you're going to not only notice passages like Hebrews chapter 10, but also notice this tendency that we have to always think that we're right. And that's the exact opposite mindset that anyone in their walk with God should have. Right. And it's the exact opposite message anyone's going to hear from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. We, we really, you know, we need each other. You know, bottom line, um, you know, we'll all hang together, as they say, or we'll all hang separately. So, Corbett added, uh, he went to a church that that it was false, and that's understandable. There you go. And, there you go. And and I'm sorry you had that experience, Torbett, mm-hmm. but uh, not. Mm-hmm. I, I've discovered something, man. First church I ever got involved with, it was just a disaster. Mm-hmm. It, you know, this guy that I really respected asked me to be his college intern there, and and I thought, you know, this guy when I knew him was such a radical Christian. He used to go hitchhiking with nowhere to go just so he could share with people. So when this guy said, man, you want to be my college interest? I said, great, you know, but I hadn't seen him for a few years and he'd gotten involved with this church and things had really changed. I mean, to the point where, you know, he and this other pastor would be like telling dirty jokes to each other, you know, I'd overhear him. Uh, you know, it came down to not really believing the Bible was the word of God anymore. And, um, you know, it's kind of a long story short, um, I was ready to leave the ministry over this. I thought, if this is church, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, fortunately, uh, I had been reading a book by Chuck Swindoll called Improving Your Serve. And I was just naive enough to think, well, this Swindoll guy seems to have something on the ball. He's down in Fullerton. Maybe I could talk to him about it. So I called. I talked to his secretary. I said, look, uh, I was in this church outreach where this guy just completely and totally misrepresented God's word. I confronted him on it. He said, oh, I knew that was wrong when I said it, but I didn't want to change my message. Um, you know, I, I just said, I, I've just started seminary, but I'm just, I'm befuddled. I just don't even know if I should be a part of the church uh, or, or, or be in ministry at all. And, uh, and the secretary said, oh, well, you know, Pastor Swindoll is really busy, you know, but uh, I'll pass on. So I have a meeting with this guy, right? who asked me to be his intern. He's like this big weightlifter guy, right? And we started. he started yelling at me because I told a girl in our college group who was a Mormon that Mormons weren't Christians. And he was upset about that. He says, he's never going to come back to our church if you did. You know, and I, and I, I looked at him and said, what happened to you? You were so right on. I can't believe you. And then the phone rings. And the secretary knocks on the door and says, there's a phone call for Scott. And he goes, take a message. She goes, well, it's Chuck Swindoll. And I went, well, I'll take it. So I sat at the guy's desk, guy sitting right there, told Swindoll all this stuff right there with this guy listening, what was happening. And, uh, and Swindoll told me something I'll never forget. He said, well, look, in ministry, you got to have negotiables and non-negotiables. If you prefer hymns over choruses, that's a negotiable. You know, the way they, they pass out communion or go up front, that's a negotiable. He said, but the word of God is never a negotiable. And he says, believe me, there are churches out there that actually teach God's word, and I would encourage you to find one, but don't stay in a church where they don't have that as, as a fundamental bedrock of what they're about. Mm-hmm. And I thanked him, and I hung up the phone, I looked at the guy, and I said, I'll see you later, I'm out of here. Wow. And God opened the, the doors 
you know, like a week later, this guy I was going to seminary with said, oh, I'm, I'm taking a, I'm going to start a church up in uh, Oregon. Uh, I'm a youth pastor at a church in Agora Hills. Uh, I think you'd be great to be like the youth minister up there. You know, would you want to apply for that? And so I applied for that, and uh, it was a church that was just rock solid mm-hmm. on the authority and inerrancy of God's Word, and that was exactly what I needed at, at that time in my walk with God. So, That's you know, great. Torbeth, we, we've all, you know, had some bad experience. I tell people, man, you want to talk about bad experiences in church, I'll put mine up against anybody's. <laughs> but that's the deal. It's Jesus' church. Why are we there? Jesus isn't a hypocrite. Jesus isn't a compromiser. Jesus isn't going to let us down. And Jesus says, I'm working through my people in the church. So if Jesus is doing that, probably need to be there. Hmm. So, Well, uh, let's see if we can get a little lightning round in, huh? Sure. Maybe. Uh, Dwayne wants to know, how should we respond to cancel culture? How should we respond censorship. to censorship? You know, uh, the idea that uh, social media platforms or the government even uh, will censor us or cancel us as Christians. How do we respond to that? Well, that's your neck of the woods, right, Sean? Yeah, and you'll yeah. probably be surprised to hear me say this. Censorship isn't a bad thing. It's one thing among many that gets abused. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The problem isn't censorship. I think that foul language, sexual ex- uh, sexually explicit uh portrayals and you know just the outright debasement violence and gore in this world should be censored to a degree there are things that ought not be shown in either a a public eye accessible to children or anything in that regard there is a good place for censorship note that can be abused even with good intentions but when people are censoring truth when people are censoring the gospel when people are censoring things on the basis of there's people who don't believe this therefore you need to shut up because I don't believe this, and it's always wrong to discriminate against people for what they believe. So since you believe this, I'm going to discriminate against you. Let me know if your brain started melting. (laughs) The point being made is just that. The problem isn't censorship. Christians are pro-censorship, but they also are pro-truth, pro-goodness, and we determine that by the nature of God. If we would do things that, for example, in Matthew 18, would cause children to stumble, that's a problem. Yes. and should be avoided. If we are exposing ourselves to things that are making us wiser in the ways of the world, that's a problem. We're supposed to be simple when it comes to evil, wise, and what is good. But if, on the other hand, what censorship is doing, and thus the term cancel culture, is the censoring, the restraining of good, and the promotion of evil as a result, that's the problem, Dwayne. The problem isn't censorship. The problem is those who are using the tool for purposes other than the representation of God. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, how can anyone, uh, Jari wants to know, how could any uh, non-Jewish person survive the tribulation biblically? Jewish I, people won't survive the tribulation either. Well, <laughs> the, We're told in Matthew 24 that unless those days were sh- shortened, no flesh would survive. But note, for the elect's sake, they shall be shortened. God knows just how much evil to allow so that there will be a remnant and also notes just how much evil we're capable of so that we'll be exposed to enough of it to take the hint. Yeah, and in Matthew 25, we're told, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. So when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be people from all kinds of nations that survived the tribulation period that uh, Jesus is going to judge at that particular time. Those who uh, are uh, non-believers are going to be instantly judged at that point. They're going to get the uh, just uh, rewards of what they've done. But those who were faithful to Christ, even under these extraordinary circumstances, will go into the kingdom. So there will be people who will survive the tribulation as gnarly and nasty as it will be. Yeah, and asking, how did something that happened happen? It was so unlikely. We're wasting time at that point. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, and then uh, last one. We only got a few minutes, but want to get as much of this done as we can. Um, how would we serve, uh, respond to the problem of moral evil, specifically from someone who survived or at least is looking at the Holocaust? The problem of moral evil, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the objection to God on the basis of 
Why does he allow such heinous evil to take place? If God was all good, then he would want to stop things like the Holocaust. If he was all powerful, he is capable of stopping things like the Holocaust. But the Holocaust happens, so which is it? Is God not willing? Therefore, why call him good? Is God not able? Then why call him God? That's the version Anthony Flew popularized when he was still an atheist. Notice past tense. Uh, the point being made is that this makes a faulty assumption about what God is and what he's actually here for. If we believe in a God that only exists to make sure that we're comfortable, that we're taken care of, that we're fat and happy like pets, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. And someone who survived the Holocaust, Jews in particular, should know that Hashem, their term for God, is also a God of justice. If you turn your back on him, he's under no obligation to protect you from a world that hates you and does this to itself every single day. Now note, that's an intellectual answer, but we're talking about a very emotionally heavy issue. So while my robotic response, you are assuming of God things that he hasn't promised, what then is the actual response we need to give to people who are simply hurting? and are wondering, why would God allow something like this to happen? Well, I think the most important thing is to point them to Jesus. What kind of a life did Jesus live? How was Jesus treated? Jesus was God in human flesh. Uh, I think it was Dorothy Sayers who said that uh, whatever game God may be playing with his creation, he kept his own rules and played fair. Uh, Jesus even endured the horrors of the most barbaric form of execution the world has ever known, uh, and the injustice of being railroaded by the people who supposedly were there to stand for truth and for God in order for it to happen. How much worse does it get than all of that? And yet Jesus was willing to do that. Why was he willing to enter into that? Because he loves us. Uh, no one, even a Holocaust survivor, can look at Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like. Jesus is the only person that we'll ever talk to and not have to say the words, do you know what I mean? Because he's gone through it all for us. Yeah. We do not serve a God who distanced themselves from our pain and the evils inflicted by this world, but voluntarily became a part of it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. That's uh, very, very powerful stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time to ask your questions. Awesome. Uh, please tune in again, again, every uh, weekday, same place, same time. God bless you. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.